Do you have a story to tell? Here at Rider on the Road, it's the journey that matters. Regardless of where you are on your riding journey, Rider on the Road will inspire you to take your dreams and make them happen. So sit back and enjoy the show as Melinda brings you guests who know what it's like to go it alone and who are willing to reach out to the rest of us by sharing their stories. Authors, publishers, entrepreneurs, people at all stages of the riding journey, just like you and me. It's time, dear listeners, to answer the question for yourselves. Do you have a story to tell? Welcome to episode 139 of Rider on the Road and I've just opened the most amazing parcel and it has in it two little swords. Uh, one is a green one, one is a red one and I have two copies of Aki Flintheart's book, Iron, which is some of what, which we discuss in our podcast uh, today. But the exciting thing is uh, one of these books is to give away, I'm keeping one or maybe after I've read it I'll give it away, I'm not sure yet. Uh, but we've got a competition for you, which is why I'm doing this special little intro. We have come up with, or I'll actually blame Deb Kelly, has come up with the idea of a competition to give away these books. And we've decided whoever gives us the most amazing photograph of an iron in action, and now we're talking about an ironing board, and our Amazon heroines are wielding that iron. Uh, I was thinking ironing clothes, but I don't iron clothes, so I was a bit confused. And Aki herself, she's decided that she's going to swing her iron around her head and um, swing it off into the distance, uh, which made me then think I was going to jump off the balcony with my hair flowing and get Sam to catch her, capture it on a GoPro. So we are waiting to see your photographs. Uh, if we, we might pop them all up on Facebook and the winner will get a beautiful copy of Aki Flintheart's uh, new book, Iron. Uh, and I'll be talking a little bit more about this as we promote our competition and get ready to give it away. The other news is uh, I was looking at a train ride from Brisbane to Adelaide. It's a new, I guess it's a new like a garn type uh, rail journey. And we've decided to put together a Writers on the Train writing retreat. Now, this is all a bit of fun. Um, everyone will pay their own tickets, including me. But we'll have a bunch of writers uh, travelling, I guess, across Australia on this train and living the life of luxury as one does on exotic train trips and seeing what writing comes out of it. If you're interested in that, don't forget to maybe drop me a line on melinda at tropicalwriting.com.au or we'll be putting more about that up in Facebook as well. I'm thinking early next year, February or March. I was very surprised at the amount of interest that a writer on the train would would um, conjure up amongst us, but I can see why uh, it certainly has a romantic ring and I'm very keen to go even if I've got to go on my own, but I think I'm going to have a few of you along with me. Okay, sit back, listen to Aggie, one of the most amazing women I've ever had the pleasure pleasure to chat to and I wouldn't argue with her if I were you because she knows how to throw a knife or three. And welcome to another episode of Writer on the Road. Today we're staying here in my beautiful town of Brisbane. Welcome Ike Flintheart. Hey thanks Mel, appreciate it, glad to be here. Yeah, now we've got the beautiful Deb Kelly to thank for this one, and we are going to Fantasyland. Ike has nine or ten books published. We'll clarify that in a minute. They are middle grade and adult fantasy novels, and she has won or shortlisted for the. I've forgotten how to pronounce it again. How do you pronounce Orealis. it? Orealis. Orealis. Yeah, Orealis Awards and Writers of the Futures Contest. 
Uh, Ike, I had this wonderful time on your website this morning and I didn't deviate from the website because it's just fascinating. Uh, you oh, are, you're a fighter warrior woman. I am indeed, yes. I've been training in martial arts for about oh, 18 years or so now. It's It's good for writing. It gives you lots of good fight scenes. Yeah, and it's really cool, everybody. I had a look at some of the covers of Ike's books and there is this woman and she's holding a knife. I think it's the Shadows Trilogy. trilogy. Yeah, and yep. This woman is, I, I love the expression, she's a kick-ass female. I like her. And we're going to talk about that today, about how to write fight scenes because that's what Ike specialises in. But first, Ike, I want to take you back to the beginning because you have been writing for a little while, about seven years, um, but you've learned an awful lot along the way. Oh, yes. Yeah. Look, I've actually been writing my whole life, but early on they were really dreadful romances that will never see the light of day. And then my son is, uh, is dyslexic and he was really struggling with the big fat books like the Harry Potters and things. He wanted to read something action-y, but he just couldn't get through them. So I went, all right, I'll write a series. So I wrote a series of five books for middle graders, um, portal fantasies, kids get sucked back into a computer game set in 80 AD. And my, my sneaky goal was to, to hide some real history in there. So the kids have to go through five levels in five different countries, all set in ATAD. And wow, they learn things about India and China and Egypt along the way. And it's full of fight scenes. But, you know, after I published those, they were really quite successful. There's been about 400,000 downloads. But uh, I then realized I really didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> so... I went away and learnt a lot of things and wrote some more books and now the ones that are coming out, you know, are stronger, written, better written, but uh, the, the old ones keep selling really well, so there's something about them. Yeah. Now, everyone, 400,000 downloads of middle grade novels is just amazing. We're talking digital only. Ike is an indie publisher and when I went on to your website, Ike, other than Amazon and your own website, where else can we buy your books? Because I actually couldn't see anywhere. Yeah, they're on all the major retailers. So iBooks and Kobo and Barnes and & Noble and a couple of others. Yeah, they're all the major retailers. And you can actually get print on demand as well. If you walk into your bookshop and say, I want this book, they'll order it for you. So yeah. they're everywhere. Yeah, and reminded me very much, I, I've always adored Jackie French and her historical novels. And when I looked at your ADAD uh, series, and this is what took me so long, everybody, uh, Ike has on her website, if you're interested, uh, all the bonus materials and background research. And I was just hooked. I, hooked. I was learning about hieroglyphics. I was off to China, myths and legends. I've made pages of notes here. Uh, that research... I said to my daughter, you really have to know an awful lot to be able to write these fantasy novels to build your worlds, don't you? Oh, yes. The research involved is incredible. The latest one that's coming out, Iron, is, uh, is actually a science fiction fantasy set on a future colony world. But my background is a geologist. So I, you, to, to do a, a, an alternate world, a different world, you've got to really science the heck out of those things. You have to do your hard science research. And for historical ones, you have to do your historical research because someone out there will pick you up on every mistake. I guarantee it. And I was trying to teach kids something, so I wanted it to be as accurate as it could be. So yeah. it's part of the fun, though. 
Yeah, now we were talking about me uh, before the episode or po- before the podcast today. I interviewed Cheryl and Kenyon, which is why I reached out everyone for more uh, fantasy and science fiction because our listeners want that. But what happened when I read Sherilyn's stuff, I was really hooked on these stories. These stories are fast-paced, they're action. You learn something along the way about whole new worlds, plus you get to make up uh, other languages and words that I can't, I'm not even game to pronounce here on the podcast. Uh, you are right up there. You, Your books, I'm, I will download them because I'm interested. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? You write for middle graders, yet I'm guessing that the parents are really interested as well. Well, yeah, the ADAD series, it's actually kind of amazing. I get fan mail every day from all over the world, like the Caribbean and Poland and India. And always it's it's adults who say, I downloaded these for my son, but I absolutely love them. I've read them three times. I just had a lady in America who um, read them about five years ago and now has a little boy that she's named after the main character, which is so cool. It was like, oh, wow. <laughs> Yeah. Now, this is, this is a, a lady from Brisbane, a beautiful young lady smiling back at me here, who 15 years martial arts trained and knife throwing and archery, which we're going to go into because I want to learn how to throw a knife. I think that's really <laughs> cool. Uh, and in your spare time, it would appear that you've, you've written these novels that are now internationally recognised. Yeah, it's yeah, honestly authors earn nothing these days. No matter, I mean, unless you're J.K. Rowling, there's a huge disparity between the the big selling authors and the rest of the world. So most of us have to unfortunately have full time or part time jobs. And I run a full time business, and you know, luckily my son is grown up, so in the evenings I have time to write, and my husband's very supportive. I'm lucky. Yeah, I keep hearing this is supportive husband words, everybody, so I think that's really cool. All our great writers have supportive husbands. Yes. Uh, now, you say we want, I don't want personal details or anything, but you're an indie publisher. You've had 400,000 downloads, so they download for a few dollars each. And even with that amount of downloads, you're still not making a full-time living. No, unfortunately, because very early on, I, I had them up for free for a little while and then, um, you know, put money on them after that. So I do get money, but it's, yeah, it's not as much as anybody thinks because there's royalties, but Amazon takes a percentage and all the other retailers take a percentage. And when you're only selling ebooks for a very small amount, there's not a lot left over. Yeah. Now, this is where indie publishers or indie authors have the advantage, everyone. Uh, uh, Sherilyn, now, where did I get? Oh, I know where that got from. (laughs) Ike, Ike, let's stick with the present, shall we? The Shadow Trilogy, three books. Yeah. So you've got them, they're they're finished, and you're starting on your next series um, with the book coming out as we speak called Iron, and it's the first of the Calamar Trilogy. Yeah. The more books you have and every little bit adds up, this is where indie authors come into their own, don't they? It is, because the modern trend in indie authorship is to put out a lot of books as fast as you can. To be honest, I'm not sure that's going to work for fantasy, because fantasy novels tend to be longer. Um, The Shadows series are 80,000 each, the uh, Iron is 140,000, and the two, the sequels for that are already written, and they're 120, 130,000. So that's a lot of words. And it's quite hard to put that volume out quickly, but that's kind of how indie authorship works. You just keep putting books out. To be honest, I'd rather do a few fewer that are really good quality 
and not earn as much because I'm not dependent on it for a living. I love writing. I don't care. Yeah. Now this is this is again everybody. This is on on Ike's website, and there is a sporadic blog called Warrior Woman. So I got to have a little bit of um, Ike's slice of life as as you built up. I think your writing confidence, and it's yes. really interesting because the very first thing that I read was. And, and I've written it down here as a quote, and it's something about the middle ground. You need to find the middle ground between paralyzing lack of self-belief and ignorant overconfidence as you develop as a writer. And I thought, how very true that is. It is, it is. Because when you first start writing, you think you know what you're doing and you just pour out the words. And then, you know, if you get negative feedback or you get other writers who go, but what about... You start realizing what you don't know, and you don't know what you don't know, and it, you suddenly go, "Oh my God, I can't write anymore. I don't know enough." And you could get trapped in this cycle of of having to be perfect because so many writers tend to be introvert perfectionists. So you kind of have to find that ground where you're still writing and still learning, and just be comfortable with the fact that it's never going to be perfect, and let it go. Yeah, and the advantages of indie publishing, of course, is you can make it the best you can and done yes. is better than perfect and later on you can go back and fix it. And I'm not talking about major structural rewrites and we'll talk about that shortly. I'm talking yeah. about bits and bods as you go along. Oh, there was a spelling error. Yeah, I'll go in and fix it. And kids, they're going to let you know, aren't they? Oh, yes, definitely. And you have to treat that as a good thing because no matter how many times you get it edited, because obviously a better bo- a book is better if you do get it edited. So, I- All right. <laughs> so yeah, look, I, I highly recommend that, you, that you, you get books edited and any feedback that you get that's positive and useful as opposed to just nasty and negative because everybody gets those and you just have to ignore them. But feedback that actually tells you something like, oh, you've made a spelling mistake, that's worthwhile. Take it on board. Accept it. Yeah. I, I actually start my books now with a, a warning to all my American fans because I've got a lot of American. I, and I start it saying, note, this is written with Australian spellings. Get over it. Because I got tired of them telling me I was spelling things wrong. Yeah, and I think there was another note. I was reading, I read all your book blurbs because I was hooked. And one of them at the bottom said, if you're expecting shape uh, shifters, you're going to be disappointed. <laughs> yes, because <laughs> paranormal uh, at the moment in, in especially romances, paranormal romances are big, but they're all shapeshifters and vampires and, you know, there's still some zombies hanging around. But... I just, yeah, I didn't go that way. So I just thought I should warn people. There's no shapeshifters. I got the impression uh, from what I've read, yours are a pure fantasy or science fiction that will stand the test of time. Well, I'm hoping so. Uh, you know, you have to, to, to do that, you have to kind of minimise the amount of current pop culture references, which isn't easy when Shadows is an urban fantasy. There are some in there. But... Yeah, I've tried to make the heroines tough. I've tried. One of the things my husband loves about them is that the relationships in them are equal. The women and men are equal. There's no, there's no love triangles. There's no, you know, one person being dominant over the other. He he really loves it as a male in this Me Too era, as a good example of how women can be strong 
and men can be strong and neither of them has to take away from the other. And that's one of the things I'm really passionate about is, yeah, writing women as equal and strong without being wimpy and <laughs> walked over. Yeah, and this is cool because you're, you're, you have a young audience uh, as well as adults. It's, it's great that the kids are getting these messages, I think, um, and the adults amongst us as well. And let's, let's kick in now to the workshops that you run because I've got to tell you I am absolutely fascinating. Do we go, if we go and do your workshops, I know they're story writing workshops, do we actually get to kick people? I'd love to. I want to do one of those as a masterclass, but the liability issues are horrendous. <laughs> no, look, at the moment, the workshops do have some demonstrations. I have a couple of demos of uh, small techniques that I can use on people that won't hurt them and teaches people things like gun disarms or reactions to, to techniques that people apply. And it's it's hilarious to watch. But a lot of it is to do with the physiology, the psychology, the body chemistry, the mental reactions, the whole lead up to a fight scene and the differences within how women and men react to violence and handle violence. And it's actually a really fascinating subject. I'm thinking I should bloody do a master's on it or something. I actually think you should write a book on it for the rest of us writers. Um, I was I was enamoured. I was hooked. It's the everybody. The workshop is the. It's a um, well. I call it a kick-ass writing scene. Writing fight scenes for women. (laughs) I want to have a go. But it's the physiological and psychological differences between men and women in fights, trained or untrained in martial arts. Now, I take for granted, I guess, what I know. But if I was going to write a fight scene or even an argument scene or even a disagreement scene, to think more deeply and give it more credibility and to make it more authentic... This workshop's for all of us. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I've had people in the workshops who write straight-out romances and there's no action or fights at all, but because the psychology and the physiology of leading up to a really full-on argument is very similar to the physiology and psychology of leading up to an actual fight scene, it's all applicable. Yeah. yeah. Now, this didn't come about uh, by accident, everybody. Remember, we've got Ike here. Clearly, she doesn't sleep. Clearly, she's 150 with, because of all the things that she's done and how she's lived. Uh, but you had eight years of running workshops for corporates on characterization. Yeah, I was uh, working with businesses, teaching them how to understand personality differences in the workplace so that they could hire people to create teams. And I suddenly realised that you could apply that equally to writing. If you're writing an ensemble cast in a in a book, if you write balanced personalities so that you've got representation for like say five different five to eight different personality types or four to eight depending on your team, you're appealing to all of the readers then. You've got everybody covered. Somebody's going to like one of your characters. <laughs> And it also leads to brilliant conflict options because, you know, the leader who's really strong-willed is always going to conflict with the really laid-back, easygoing person who's going, yeah, I don't want to go there. Go and have your own quest. Bugger off. (laughs) So many opportunities for conflict in personality profiling. It's fabulous. 
All right. See, uh, and the depth, the depth of your knowledge. Uh, I'm sure I'm not the only one sitting here going, oh, where can we buy the book? Where can we buy the cheat sheets? Now, there's a lot of stuff on your website, uh, bonus material for the actual books and the physical research of China and all those places and myths and pyramids and tombs and hieroglyphics and do we need to go on? Uh, but there's nothing on there as yet for writers to be able to go to your website and buy the book because I'm guaranteeing I'm not the only one. Yeah, I'm actually, uh, at the moment, because I've given this fight scenes workshop a few times and I've given the the personality profiling workshop a few times, I'm now at the point where it's refined enough that I know how it should go. So I've actually pitched it to Worldcon uh, in New Zealand in 2020 as well. And I'm really hoping that if they take it up, I can have a book ready to go with it for 2019, 2020. And then that will be available to, you know, obviously, because I can't give workshops all over the world as much as I'd love to. Feel free to invite me if anybody's listening. But, uh, you know, failing that, yeah, it means that other writers can hopefully benefit and take away the useful stuff for their fight scenes and their personalities as well. Yeah, it's screaming out for online courses, everybody, isn't it? It's screaming out for webinars. Uh, if you follow the tr- traditional indie publishing route, um, think Joanna Penn, think Mark Dawson, yeah. all those guys. If you were that way inclined, over time you are going to have an amazing business and your books, some of your books are set here in downtown Brizzy. Yeah. I'm sure I'll be interviewing you in the future and I'll be talking to someone who was as famous as... Um, uh, what was her name? Carolyn, whatever her name was. What's her name? <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> I've forgotten. Uh, certainly very, very, very famous. I should really write it down. Uh, <laughs> let's let's talk a little bit more about your expertise in writing because you haven't got this far this quickly without having that expertise. As much as you say you started from scratch and you were just arrogant and um, went, went for it. Uh, you have an editing service and yes, yeah. you offer some amazing, I guess, ama- not only amazing value, but you take us through what needs to be done before a book's published. I'm talking structural edits, line edits, and just a simple manuscript assessment. Someone who's new to writing would look at your website and go, oh, do I need to have all that stuff done? Oh, look, it's obviously everybody's choice. But uh, I, I don't think you can these days get away without at least a structural um, analysis on your book. I know that when I, when I first started writing, I didn't actually know what story structure was. And, but because I had read so much as a child and a young adult, when I went back and looked at what I'd written in the ADAD series, I realised I'd actually nailed the structure unconsciously. So it was really lucky because I don't think I could have rewritten them all. But when I, when I looked at Shadow's Wake, the first one, and applied a structural analysis to it, I realised that I, I'd missed it, uh, missed a key point, and I had to completely rewrite and shift scenes around to make it work. And sometimes you need that external eye to go, okay, you feel like your story's not working here and this is why. Your scene is too long or your scene is not paced correctly or your one of your characters doesn't have a strong enough arc. So you do need an external eye and if you can get a lot of it from good beta readers that's a great place to start but sometimes beta readers love you too much and they don't want to tell you the things wrong because they don't want to hurt your feelings (laughs) but as a writer you've just kind of got to suck it up and go yep 
I need some help with this. It's not perfect. It's never going to be perfect, but I'm sure it can be better. And that's where you need the help of somebody who maybe has a few more years of experience. That's really all it is, just a few more years. Now you've got iron coming out as we speak. It's going to be a series as well. Have you had that book uh, professionally edited, um, given your own experience? Yeah, and that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because you just can't see, you read it so many times, you cannot see the mistakes. And I learned a lot from when that one got edited. That was really useful. Um, and the same, you know, you, you can then take away what's been applied to one book and immediately take it to your next book and apply all those new skills that you've learned to that next book. And it's better again. So you require a bit less editing on that book because you now know a bit more about what you're doing. (laughs) So hopefully the process of getting edited means your next series of books, your next set of books, you know, is tighter and stronger right from the get-go. And that's the the experience of all authors, whether they're indie or traditionally published. The more you write, the more you get edited, the less editing you gradually need because you kind of know what you're doing. Yeah, and remember, this is a lady who started out not having a clue what she was doing and just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote um, and very successfully as well because um, the kids loved you. With Iron, is that a series of three and can you tell us a little bit about it because I'm curious. Yeah, look, Iron is uh, one of three. The second one is Fire. The third one is Steel. They're already written. Uh, They got inspired because I, I made the really stupid mistake of sending my husband and son along on a weekend blacksmithing course and they came back covered in coal dust and went, we're going to buy a forge. So now we have a forge and my husband blacksmiths every weekend and I can't really complain because I have a matched set of swords and daggers now, which is really cool. But I'm also a geologist as my original training and I sort of went, well, what happens if you colonise a future world, which is a a standard science fiction trope where you colonise a world and you terraform it, you make it habitable. But if that world doesn't have a history of millions of years of life, then we have no iron deposits and we have no chalk and we have no coal and oil and all of the things that they're associated with millions of years of life. And then if you take that world that has no iron and you find an iron deposit, suddenly the whole social order gets turned upside down and everything's chaos. And that was fun. I really enjoyed writing that. (laughs) So I am just, I'm gobsmacked here. Uh, Okay, so we go on a blacksmithing weekend and we we buy a forge and we now own sets of daggers and swords. Yeah. I am just so jealous. This is beyond anything that I could imagine, everybody. Uh, forget that we're a writing podcast here. I want to know more about science fiction worlds and and clearly your deep knowledge of geology, like I was married to a mining engineer, so I've got a fair idea what you're talking about, um, yep. but to be able to apply what you know and and turn it into something like this, like this must be a huge world. Do you have a big map on your wall or something? There's actually a map in the front of the book. <laughs> And I spent hours hand-drawing maps for, you know, every city and every part of the planet. And it's kind of the thing for science fiction, science fantasy is maps. And luckily, uh, I actually sent my map off to a gentleman, Russell Kirkpatrick, who's a writer and a cartographer. And he gave high praise indeed. And he said, it's a good map, which is for Russell, very high praise. So (laughs) I figure it's not too bad. But yeah, look, as a geologist, it it did make 
the world building easier in some ways because you know you you know that the central conflict it revolves around my speciality which does make writing it a lot easier it's very hard to write something that you have no knowledge of because that re requires a heck of a lot of research but uh, yeah it's it's been fascinating i've really enjoyed the process of world building which is so crucial to science fiction and science fantasy yeah, and I love the idea, like, uh, you know, my whole um, experience of this is J.R.R. Tolkien uh, and and his languages and his world building and all that kind of stuff. So that's, that's yeah. where my love of it comes from. And I think that's why when I read your what's on your website, I get very, very excited. Uh, again, people want to know what you're doing when it comes to, I wouldn't have a clue how to draw a map. My kids at school would be jumping up and down with excitement if you came in and taught them some of this stuff. I'd love to. <laughs> yeah. Do you, um, are you going to move into nonfiction and start, I know you've talked about you wanted this book for the um, conference in 2020, which I'm sure they'd be crazy not to take you up on it. You have, you have a whole future in nonfiction uh, for the rest of us as well, don't you? Uh, I'd love to. To be honest, there is a lot out there. There is a lot of writers talking about how to write, especially in the last seven, eight years. It's huge. I don't know that I have too much that's unique I could add to it, but uh, I'm, I probably will take you up on your suggestion and, and throw a few things up on the website in the next year or so just because I've had a few people ask now and it's like, oh, well, I'm happy to help other writers if I can. <laughs> Yeah, I want the maps, everybody. I love maps. I love, um, we had um, Kevin oh, Tumlinson. He writes beautiful his, um, historical uh, thrillers and he loves maps and cartography and his books are amazing as well. Yeah. He's been on the podcast a couple of times and I love his stuff. And I know Joanne Penn gets into those worlds as well. Yeah, and I will put those maps up now that you've reminded me. But the other thing I've just realised is that I'm at the moment my current work in progress is in the same world as the Shadows series because it's an ongoing uh, series, that one, urban fantasy, but it's set in 1486 in London, which is the time of the end of the War of the Roses, the start of the Tudor dynasty. And I decided to try something a bit interesting and different I wanted to teach myself more how to write really unique character voices so that each character comes across very differently. So to do that, and this is the challenge and you may laugh, I'm writing 24 short stories, all set in London, 24 different women, first person, close. So 24 unique character voices and several of the women, they all kind of, will know each other or glance off each other and there's an overarching story involving an attempt to assassinate King Henry VII that will thread through each of the 24 stories so that together it will form one big novel but each story will stand alone. It's, I'm halfway through. It's challenging but I'm really enjoying it. <laughs> Forget the non-fiction, everybody. We want this woman to keep working on her fiction. Uh, your mind must just not stop. It's Yeah, well, I actually said this to my husband this morning. I did not sleep last night because I, my brain woke me up at about midnight and went, you don't want to sleep. You've got too many ideas. You're not going to sleep. So I literally didn't sleep last night. <laughs> Uh, and and weaving twenty four voices, and you've got that beautiful, beautiful, rich historical period. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of Kate Forsyth and her 
her, I guess, her fantasy stuff that she writes and, and yes. the research that she puts into that is oh, yeah. amazing as well. Uh, you talk about your Shadows trilogy. Now, call me naive, but I thought they were set in Brisbane. Well, the first one is actually set in Cairns because that's where I grew up and I just thought that was a fun place to write one because you've got such rich tropical sensations and the characters... Uh, have a very strong connection to forests. So I wanted somewhere that had a good place they could draw from. And then the second one moves to Brisbane. And then the third one ends up in Florence in Italy, partly because I'd just been there on holidays and I was like, this is a cool place to write a story. And there was a museum in Florence called the Stibbet Museum, which was uh, a private museum owned by one of the last people who had money from the, um, the Dutch East Indies companies. And he went and bought all of these weapons and armour from all over the world, the Turkish Empire, the, the, the Japanese Empire, all these, this whole mansion is stuffed with weapons, flintlocks and, you know, knights in armour and swords. And I, I, I went into this museum and I went, I need to write a fight scene in this museum. So I did. So book three has a fight scene in it where they trash the museum and use the weapons. It was so much fun. <laughs> Okay. I look, I'm listening. I'm sitting back and listening, everybody. If you want to ask any questions, please write to Ike because I can't. I'm just fascinated. <laughs> fight scenes in your novels. Okay. Yeah. You've got your fight scene, you've got your museum, you're trashing it, you've got all these amazing weapons that I just think, oh wow, how exciting. Let talk us through talk us through a scene. Talk us through what's going on in your character's mind, the psychology, the physiology, how you move your characters about. Do you just split it all out on the page? Do you plan it? Do you, do you um, structure it? Do you get up and have a go at doing it? Well, it's, it's kind of tricky because I try and make the fight scene so varied that you don't feel like you're repeating the same scene each time in just a different place. Um, and because my characters use different types of martial arts, like my martial arts speciality is Yoshinkan Aikido, but uh, I've also cross-trained in jiu-jitsu and, and kung fu, and so I can pull from a whole bunch of arts. So I try to use different techniques for different characters and different fight scenes just to give variety, and then different weapons. Like in the Shadows trilogy, Rowan, the lead character, has a knife called a karambit, which is a middle uh, East Asian knife, and it's, it's like a little claw that sticks out from your hand. And she uses it and she, she has a very thin version that she keeps underneath her bras, her bra underwire, so that she can whip this little knife out and kill people. It's just so much fun riding unusual weapons. One of the, character, one of the bad guys in the ADAD series had a, a sword called an urumi, which is a flexible piece of steel that can be worn as a belt. So one of the bad guys slips this flexible urumi out and, you know, waves it around very Indiana Jones style and, you know, attempts to kill the good guy. So it's all about variety and making sure that there's nothing boring. There's no white room where people are just standing there punching each other. You have to make them trip over things or smash into things and you have to allow them to have a little bit of internal dialogue, but not so much that it slows the fight down, which is a really tricky balance to get right. 
This is fascinating. Now, does the energy that you're exuding now, and like everyone, this lady is sparkling. She's just <laughs> clearly throwing herself into this. I'm stuff. blushing. I'm blushing. <laughs> does this come into, does this translate onto the page? Is your writing as energetic as you are? I think so. I, I mean, it's very hard for me to tell, but most of the feedback I get from readers and reviewers is that it's fast-paced and action-orientated. And I actually had one reader say that there was no way that iron was 140,000 words. No way. It was impossible. And I'm looking at my word count going, I'm pretty sure it says 140,000 words on my page here. But he was adamant that because it was so fast, it couldn't possibly have been that long. So I feel like that's a success because I want people to be so immersed and so drawn through it that even the slower pieces feel like they're moving quick enough that you're not bored. All right, now we've got uh, Iron coming out now and 140,000 words, everybody, my gosh. Uh, and you've got the other two written. Are they as long? They're slightly shorter because you've got a lot more world building to set up in the first book and you've got a lot more establishing the characters at the beginning. So, you know, you need that extra 10,000 or so to get everything immerse the readers comfortably into the world without being dull so the second book and the third book are about I think 120,000 each and you can just kind of launch straight into those because everybody's already comfortable with the characters in the world they know what's going on and it's it's kind of fun you get to open straight into an action scene in the second story because everybody knows what's going on they don't have to be set up just like get in kill people always fun is there lots of blood to be honest, I don't write gore. I don't write gratuitous gore because partly because I want it to be readable by younger people and partly because I have nightmares. Honestly, I can't watch a horror movie to save myself and I don't feel the need for graphic descriptions of eye gouging and blood dripping down people's arms. It's just not necessary for the story. The story's about the characters and how they feel about things. And that's what you want your reader to be connected to, not how gruesome the fight was and how much the blood in the guts all over the ground is revolting. Oh, kids like that stuff. Um, now, question for you. Why, and it's a marketing question, everyone, you're going to release one and then what happens? Because I'm assuming it's a marketing thing that you're going to release them one at a time if they're all ready to go? Yeah, look, it's, it's more the, the lack of time. Because it takes time to do all, the, as well as running a full-time business, it takes time to do all the lead-up and the marketing and the prep and the formatting and all the final works and make sure everything's right to go. And it takes money. You've got to be able to afford to buy the uh, the covers, get the covers professionally designed and, and get all the editing paid for. And so it's not something that I can afford to release all of them instantly, unfortunately. <laughs> But, you know, it's they will be close. It's like with traditional publishing, you'll have maybe two to three years between a book. With these, it'll only be maybe two or three months. So it's not going to be a big time lag. Yeah, and that's what they recommend everyone. You put out one, then you put out the other, then you put out the other. It's actually a very, very clever marketing uh, technique. And yeah. that will lift the sales of your previous books and then you'll have, what, a dozen uh, doing the circles for you, won't, that, won't yeah, you? Yeah, exactly. And the idea is you use, uh, you use some of your books as loss leaders. Like, so the first two in ADAD are permanently free because they draw people in to read them and then hopefully they'll buy the rest and then they'll, they'll like the style so much that they'll be happy to move on to the other books that are 
paid books as well, which is the ideal. But and periodically you do giveaways and you do promos and you you know find see if you can get onto BookBub, which is kind of like the holy grail of marketing. But uh, it's all very time consuming, and you know I actually prefer writing to marketing. So <laughs> strangely enough, <laughs> and it's interesting you had a choice very uh, back at the beginning where. You did have publishers interested in your work and clearly I know why uh, because, like, these things are just so good. But you chose to go indie. Yeah, I mean, the ADAD series, to be honest, I, I very, made some very half-hearted attempts but I didn't know what I was doing with query letters or sending them in so I didn't even really bother. I just put them up and they went nuts. So I went, oh, maybe I should get publishers to look at what I'm doing and... The uh, the Shadows series um, had a publisher interested and had an agent interested, but the the publishing contracts these days are really not that great. They don't give me anything that I couldn't do myself and they don't do any marketing much anymore because they can't afford to take risks on unknowns. So there wasn't really a huge benefit in going with a publisher except that they would do some of the time-consuming stuff, but I'm a bit of a control freak, so I stayed with Indy. Uh, thank God she's a control freak, everybody. She's one dangerous woman with all her martial arts. <laughs> I've got mum, my daughter Sam, who I talk about all the time, and her, her very, very good friend Amanda. She's the same age. Amanda dropped out of school, uh, sorry, uni everyone this year, first year at uni, because she is obsessed with martial arts. She's been doing it for many years. She's about four foot nothing, so she has to have um, special techniques because she's too tiny to throw the big blokes. Um, but she now goes five uh, five nights a week. Fantastic. She's, she tells us what she's doing. She comes, she's very animated, just like you. Um, <laughs> but it is an obsessive world. She's learning different styles and she's got to go back to the beginning. Clearly that's what you've done as well, haven't you? you once you get into this, it becomes your world. It does get a bit obsessive, yes. Uh, when I was training for my first black belt, I was training six days a week, three to four hours a day for a year between brown belt and black belt. So I had uh, defensive bruises up and down my arms and it got to the point where I would walk into a shopping centre and, you know, in the ladies' toilets, you're brushing back your hair and other women are looking at you like, should we, like, be calling the cops? No, no, it's okay, really. <laughs> it's all good. But there is, it, it's empowering and it is, there is something about the change in you when you know that if you had to, you could put up a damn good fight. It really does. It makes you walk differently. It makes you feel different. It makes you think different. You just feel better about yourself. And yeah, it's, it's addictive. It really is. Those endorphins. Yeah. Now this is coming through. This will all come through in your female characters. You walk differently. Uh, those details I wouldn't even know to add in. Okay. Knife throwing. Talk us yes. through it. I want to throw a knife. Well, I decided that when I was writing the Shadows series, I decided that I, if I was going to write a character who threw knives, I needed to know how to throw a knife. And so I ordered some knives. You can just order them on eBay. It's really easy. And my husband very kindly made me a, a throwing target, which is a big sheet of board. And I just looked at a few YouTube videos and there's about three different main techniques you could try and just practiced and practiced and practiced until now I could probably, oh yeah, I could fairly safely kill you at about so I'll, three, four metres away without a problem. <laughs> Guys, I have never had any desire to go and do this stuff. Um, 
I love how your mind works. I Like, this is just so cool. Now, I don't even know if we're going to get time to talk about Ike's romance novels, people, but they can't be half as much fun as these ones are. Um, well, actually, the, 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 one that I've written, that, the one that I have published, I've published because she was a kick-ass heroine. So she's not a, a layback and let the hero rescue me. She rescues herself from some really nasty people at the end of the book and kicks their ass. And you've got a new one coming out too, Romance. Um, oh, that's a work in progress. It's been put on the back burner for a little while, but the next one in the Shadows series is actually probably technically a paranormal romance. But yeah, it's again on the back because I got so obsessed with the the Blackbirds, which is the fourteen eighty six story. I just I've got to finish that one first. Yeah, and that's the twenty four voices, isn't it? Yeah, which bizarrely enough only has two kick ass women because it's quite hard to work in ninjas into fourteen eighty six London. I don't even want to. My, my mind. Um, Deb Kelly, I, you owe me for this one. <laughs> I'm not going to sleep for a while. Um, now we didn't get. I wanted. I want to finish this archery. How? How? Now I've seen people. I've fired archers. I've fired arrows. I know how it works. Yeah. I, I have fired arrows at a target, but I'm guessing you're going to take that to a whole new level as well, aren't you? Well, I decided that um, the character in Iron it was a very good archer and she's a horseback archer. And so I needed to learn to use a horse bow, which is a bit different from a normal bow. And so I now have a horse bow. I also have a long bow, which I had custom made. And I shoot them both left and right handed because, you know, in a zombie apocalypse, you've got to be able to shoot around corners with sticking without sticking your head out. And because the lead character of Iron can shoot left and right-handed so you have to know what these characters do because then you can make it realistic is that just me is that weird uh it is just you and it is weird and i'm writing it down. a zombie apocalypse you've got to be able to shoot around corners without sticking your head out yeah that's got to be the quote of, that's that's the quote of the day. you have made my day i love it uh, everybody I am 57 years old and I have not lived. I <laughs> I certainly don't have this many weapons. Is your house registered as a danger spot with all these weapons in it? Oh, dear. I've actually I counted them the other day. I think we have 35 different weapons. And that's including all sorts of daggers and bows and swords. And, yeah, don't don't come and rob our house, really. Just don't. <laughs> I'm not going to. Uh, now, historical weapons is clearly a passion of yours. And now that you have a whole forge in your backyard, I'm guessing you're going, you've got a whole lot of fun coming up as well. Well, my son actually was part of a, a medieval Viking reenactment group a couple of years ago. So he made a couple of really cool battle axes and uh, a, a spear used by the, the Vikings when they were being mercenaries for the Ottoman Empire, would you believe? I don't know if you knew that, but they did. So... <laughs> He, uh, yeah, he made some uh, historical weapons then, which was awesome. And now I just have to convince my husband that really, really, we need more. We need more swords. We really do. I'm keen for a gladius, one of the Roman swords. That would be fun. So your son has gotten into all this as well. I know we have some wonderful medieval reenactment um, festivals up on the Sunshine Coast there. Uh, we were going to go one. I think there was one up at Petrie, which is a local place here, everyone, where, yeah. where women were doing wonderful things like, you know, nice, neat things like handcrafts and stuff. Yeah. Um, not like you. Not well, like, hey, come up here and throw a knife. <laughs> there are some. There are some. If you go to the Abbey, uh, the Abbey uh, Medieval Festival every July, 
there are women who get involved in the reenacting as well. They're full on. And some of the combat in those reenacting is really full on. There's, there's some injuries. There's some people taken away in medieval ambulances. It's impressive. I love it. Now, you said you have a full-time business. First of all, my question is why? And my second question is when are you going to give it up and write more stories? Well, yeah, giving it up. I, I'm I'm saving up for retirement. So if we can retire a little bit early, which I'm hoping we can, then we can sell the business and I can just write. And I could also get back to painting as well because I miss painting. I used to do a lot of that as well. So, yeah, yeah writing, painting, retiring in that order. Yeah, is your business just a nice office job where you're safe and sitting in a chair? Yeah, but I actually, I haven't got my sword in today, but normally I, I wear a, a little sword that I, I twist up in my hair and hold my hair up with it. And, you know, every once in a while when I wear that at work and you get a really annoying customer, the temptation, honestly, the temptation is very strong. <laughs> yeah, now, the details of this sword, everybody, is on the website. I was reading about that sword this morning. Uh, so it must come up in one of your novels uh, about yes. the little hair clip thing. Yes, uh, Aaliyah in, in Iron uses a, a, hair, a hairpin sword. Yeah. Uh, now, the Science Fiction Fantasy Writers Association of America had you on a YouTube interview recently hosted by Diane Morrison with authors Stephanie Barr and Sarah Berman. Are they as insanely exuberant <laughs> as you are? Actually, the one you've missed is uh, Mercedes Lackey was on there as well. And, and you're, if your viewers are into fantasy, they'll know who Misty is. She's a really big uh, fantasy writer and she was amazing. Um, and, yeah, it seems to me that uh, Mercedes or Misty is a, a traditionally published author, but uh, the other authors on that podcast were indies. And every indie I've met is just a bundle of energy, just going and getting stuff done done because they kind of have to you're your own one-man business you you have to do it all so you can't be slack you've just got to get in and do it yeah and um what I was going to say is I'm just sitting here going well uh what I was going to ask you is or say is that the science fiction genre is almost bigger than romance isn't it when you get followers and you get people who are obsessed with this stuff it's a whole world of its own isn't it Oh, look, the fans are very parochial. Yeah, you'll, there's not a lot of crossover between romance and science fiction, although that whole paranormal romance thing is blurring the lines a little bit. I'll have to be honest and say, no, I think the romance authors, especially the indie authors, they are so on top of it. They are outstripping everyone. Um, in fact, uh, Kim Wilkins, Dr. Kim Wilkins recently did a uh, presentation about this, that romance indie authors are outstripping every other author by magnitudes of 10, 20, 30 times. But your science fiction, science fantasy people, they are loyal. They are doggedly loyal. And once they love an author, they will read every one of their 50 long book series that fantasy writers tend to do. <laughs> All right. I could talk to this lady for hours. I'm definitely going to go and visit her and check out her blacksmithing shop. How exciting would that be? Uh, but for now... I'm going to actually put you on a spot. I'm going to pause and ask you to bring up some of your writing scenes and get you to read us one. Uh, is that okay? Uh, hang on. <laughs> Think about this. Wow, it's a good one. All right. Okay, so this is the just the opening scene from Iron, uh, just so you get a taste of, of how the writing goes. 
Freedom, however imaginary and brief, should be savoured. Aaliyah danced a few steps along the cobbles. Each moment in the blood-orange sunlight was a gift to be treasured, hoarded against days to come. She raised her face to the warmth, but the veil, although it softened the grey cityscape into dusty shades of gold, clouded her vision, a cage and a reminder. She shoved the gossamer silk up onto her forehead. Then, with arms flung wide, she embraced the jewel mirage of free will, perfect and unattainable as a yanstone. The long sleeves of her gold silk Zintau house robe fluttered like a gin bird wing. She smiled and strolled on through the Zalem slums of Medina. Her steps slowed, even though she was already late returning to Zintau house. With the veil lifted, reality's sharp edges cut into her pleasant delusion. Overhead, drunken houses, held up by washing lines and hope, crowded the narrow streets and threw shadows the colour of day-old bruises. Mud and dung mired her embroidered shoes, and it took an effort to ignore the stench of rotting food and human waste. Aaliyah hesitated. The child by the the side of the road was one of thousands in the slum these days. Regretfully, she turned aside and concentrated on the sky, visible as fragments of pale peridot between the uneven rooftops. The people here were poor, but even they were free to choose their own path. She envied them that. Tomorrow she would lose even this small independence of walking home to Jaojay House. For now, she bumped into Ket's back and the illusion shattered, as it had to. What is it? Aaliyah peered around him. Ahead, five people had someone cornered in the mouth of an alley that reeked of urine and vomit. Coarse laughter rattled off the surrounding patchwork of violet bamboo and mud brick hall walls. Windows shuttered closed as tenants hid from the future. Looks like another brawl, Ket said, blocking our rote home. Before you ask, no, you can't help. Fine, can we try a different way? This place is a maze. I've never been down that street. Could be interesting. Interesting is what I'm trying to avoid, Ket replied, which would be easier if you didn't insist on coming this way every week. That is absolutely beautiful, everyone. Now, Ike is holding up her new book in her hands. Uh, I am immediately ordering a copy of that book. It's got a little sword on it uh, that you get for free that you can dangle around and I can take to school and I can show my kids, which they will really, really love. Ike, where can we find you? Yep, you can find me on my website, www.ikeflintart.com. I'm also on Facebook under Ike Flintart or Twitter and Instagram at Ike Flintart. So, yeah, reach out, talk to me. And if you're a writer, I'm more than happy to, to help with any ideas you need with write fight scenes or whatever. And if you're a reader, absolutely connect. More than happy to chat. Yeah. Have you got another writing, uh, sorry, a fight scene workshop coming up? Because I've got to go. <laughs> the QWC, I put it recently on at the Queensland Writers' Centre and they got such good feedback that they're talking about possibly running it again next year. And I'm hoping I convince them to let me do a masterclass. Otherwise, possibly uh, Continuum, which is down at Melbourne in June next year. And maybe there was one more. I can't remember. There's two or three coming up next year, I think. So we'll get there. You'll find me somewhere. Now, I'm sure, everyone, we're going to be hearing a lot more of this lady. We're going to be hearing a lot more of her stories. Really looking forward to blackbirding and and talking to you again maybe about the intricacies of pulling 24 disparate voices together. Uh, So here's official invitation everybody we'd love to have you back when you're um, richer and famouser and good luck with all that blacksmithing that's going on in (laughs) thank you very much it's been a lot of fun 
And that's it for another episode of Writer on the Road. I'm going off to Lydan. Bye.